Welcome to Obehave, the behavioral science podcast from Ogilvy Consulting. But you can take something, not change the objective thing at all, and by giving it a different context or a different frame, you can make it an entirely different thing in terms of the emotional effect and therefore the resulting behavior. Hello, Nigers. It's Julia. And I'm David. And we are a part of the Ogilvy Consulting team and your new hosts. Today we are going to listen to a talk from this year's Natch Talk by our own brilliant Rory Sutherland. But before that, we wanted to introduce ourselves in a bit more behavioral scientist style. So David, share with us, if you were a bias, which one would you be? I mean, I'm just a big fan of the pratfall effect because essentially you can do something completely dumb, a bit stupid, but it really pays off. And I kind of really like the energy that you can do something kind of counterintuitive and it actually works out for the better. Oh, that's so interesting. Thank you for sharing, David. And myself, I'm a real life embodiment of the less is more concept. I get really tired and frustrated when I have to choose between just too many options. So much so that my hidden dream is to create a restaurant that will have only two options on the menu. David, would you be interested in becoming my first customer? I would love to be your first customer, Julia. And today we have a new format that we've not done before. Today we're going to be reliving Nudgestock. And as Julia mentioned, we're going to be starting off with Rory Sutherland. Of course, he's a man who needs no introduction. But if you don't know Rory, he's the vice chairman of Ogilvy UK, a TED legend and a living alchemist. And for us, most importantly, he is the co-founder of the Behavioural Science Practice. And so the title of this talk is, Is Everything BS? And we found out that the answer lies somewhere between double dishwashers, floating nuclear power plants, placebo vaccines, a few solar panels, and a few unwanted vegetables. Oh, wow. And all of this in one talk? If you think this is nonsense, keep listening and we promise all of this will come together. So stay tuned and we'll join you after the talk in just 20 minutes. Right. After 2020, you're probably thinking, oh, thank God I don't have to look at somebody else's bedroom wall uh, for the 407th time. Of course, tragically, this is actually my bedroom wall. My taste in decor drives my wife absolutely nuts. But it's a real pleasure to be back in the role of kind of a little like Roald Dahl at the beginning of Tales of the Unexpected in kind of teeing up what has become an exponentially growing annual event to celebrate behavioural science. And it comes to you from a company which now dedicates itself to the practice of borderless creativity. And in many ways, this is extraordinarily appropriate because the whole field which um, we're celebrating today came about in large part, not exclusively, precisely because of an unusual collapse of a traditional border. It so happened that at, I think, Stanford, uh, sometime in the 1980s, the psychology faculty happened to share a coffee room with the Faculty of Economics. And as is so often the case, actually, the best ideas nowadays don't emerge within disciplines. They emerge at the intersections between them, which is why I think it's so important to break down silos. Now, my, the title of my talk is, Is Everything BS? And taking BS to mean behavioral science, the answer to that question is, not quite, but most things are. Okay, most things involve a heady dose of behavioral science, I would argue. However, the contrary does not apply. I don't want us to start thinking that BS is everything. Okay, 
It's a very, very important point. I would argue it is necessary but not sufficient in many, many cases. The other thing, as I'd add, is that BS behavioral science without creativity, indeed BS without a tiny little whiff of BS meaning bullshit, may be actually suboptimal. That if you don't use behavioral science uh, to expand the potential solution space to a problem by adding a psychological dimension to the problem uh, in addition to the other aspects or metrics you're considering, then you're probably missing out on a huge opportunity. So this is the vital thing I'd just like to say, okay? Yep. To a great extent, I think everything is BS. I think there are huge numbers of problems uh, which persist in the world, which probably could be solved much more quickly if people would consider a behavioral or psychological dimension. At the same time, what I don't want us to do is to make the opposite mistake, which is to immediately go in, look at a problem, and assume that it has to be solved exclusively by the application of behavioral science. Because I think a lot of things are a mixture. Now, if you look at medicine, one of the slightly strange things about medicine is that they subtract the placebo effect. Now, given that the placebo effect can contribute to actually a cure or to the efficacy of a treatment, you'd think people would be trying to actually um, maximise the placebo effect. I mean, I noticed I made a joke during COVID that they tested, for example, a vaccine against placebo. Okay, and I said, shouldn't you actually test that against nothing at all on the grounds that if you can actually protect people against COVID purely through the power of self-suggestion, it might be worth finding out. Now, I don't for a second think it was realistically likely that the power of self-suggestion in that case would have a major effect. But what I do think is important is that what medicine does is it says we subtract the psychological component of the efficacy of a treatment from the overall efficacy, and what remains is the science. Now that seems a very dubious thing to do. It seems to be self-evident that there are lots of cases where an, a, a beneficial combination of a psychological placebo effect and medicinal treatment would be the best solution of all, okay? And one of the great quotes I always use, which when I first saw it on a PowerPoint slide, I thought was a little bit banal, but I now realize is incredibly important, is Harry Truman's quote, which is, anything is possible just so long as you don't care who gets the credit. I think quite a lot of science is desperate and so desperate to prove the efficacy of what it itself does. The drugs company can't claim credit for the placebo effect. They can only claim uh, credit for the medicinal component of the treatment that we become fixated on proving what we can do alone to the expense of proving and optimizing what we can do together, okay? Let's take something really simple, a sale, okay, in a shop. You're all familiar with that, I imagine, okay? Now, if you're a mainstream economist, you would look at a sale and you would say, well, this is perfectly clear and consistent with mainstream economic theory. Uh, you reduce the prices of things and demand goes up. And to some degree, that's true. I think if you held a sale and you didn't drop the prices, you could do all the other stuff, and I think people would be fairly pissed off, okay? But equally, I don't think it's fair to say that a sale only works through effectively tweaking the price-demand curve, okay? 
I think there are lots of things going on with the sale. I think there's scarcity value, the fear that other people might buy the shit that you want. There's social proof in that there are huge queues of people outside the shop waiting to get in. And there's also an additional element of scarcity in that most sales, although there are a few exceptions to this, most sales last for a finite length of time. There is a shop on Oxford Street that's been holding a closing down sale uninterruptedly for about the last five years, but that caters to tourists who aren't around to notice the inconsistency. Okay? So the most important thing you can do with a sale is not purely the economic bit, and it's not purely the behavioural bit. It's both. And in medicine, the best thing you can do is probably a combination of the two. And also, I don't want us to get so fixated on behavioural science that we obsess about behavioural science solutions. If it doesn't use scarcity bias, then it doesn't count. That's a very dangerous thing to get into. Michael Holdsworth later on will make the point, and I think he's absolutely right, that if you're approaching this healthily, then behavioural science is actually the gateway drug to complexity theory. And that we need to break down further silos, not only between behavioural science and economics, which is the one that's most notably broken down, we need to break down a whole variety of other silos. When I wrote my book, by the way, it was completely bizarre, the response in that I thought that creative people would love it, and I thought that engineers and finance people and left-brain people would generally be hostile to this whole idea of magic. Uh, the bizarre thing was it was almost the opposite, that it achieved kind of weird cult following in the coder community and the investor community, whereas the worst review I've got on Goodreads is actually written by a romantic novelist. We need to start making friends with lots of other people who understand that solving problems is just more complex and leaves more scope for creativity than the standard models currently allow. So let's take a very simple problem and let me show you what I mean by this. If I gave you and a team of people two candles, okay, and I said, you have to boil this quantity of water using only the candles and a box of matches, okay, people would probably struggle. Okay? And then some shrewd people would come in and say, well, actually, this is impossible because, look, the actual calorific value of the candles is insufficient to heat this volume of water to a point where it actually boils. So you put a big tick in the box saying, cannot be done, and you move on to the next question. Of course, it's not quite true, is it? Because um, the boiling point of water depends on altitude. You could take it to a very, very high place and the same calorific value might well boil the water. If you actually produced a vacuum around the water, it'd be easier still. Or as another compromise, you could just move the water to France, whereas everybody knows uh, water boils at 50 degrees. Well, that's the only thing that explains the shit quality of the tea, to be honest. But there are lots of ways you can solve the problem by simply recontextualizing it and adding new variables to the mix. And the interesting thing is how rarely we notice these things. That quite a lot of people would say, OK, this is impossible because they've failed to add the, uh, what you might call the altitude or the air pressure component to the mix of variables needing to be considered. And I think there are whole categories in business, by the way, where some of the world's greatest geniuses have solved extraordinary engineering problems, but they've completely failed to take the psychological component into account. So let's look very quickly at solar panels. I don't think anybody can fail to be extraordinarily impressed by the improvement made uh, with solar panels in terms of their efficiency, the lower cost of manufacture, uh, the lower weight, for example. And improvements continue to be made beyond the point which I think people thought was feasible a few years ago. And they've solved that problem. And 
geniuses as they are, they deserve credit for doing that. But they've missed what you might call air pressure out of the equation. They've missed how the hell do we sell this to people so they put it on the goddamn roof. And it is assumed still that solar panels are sold in one irreversible decision to somebody who fixes it irremovably onto their roof with a 1% chance that everything could go totally shit. You know, either your local electricity provider refuses to pay for the electricity you put in or the, your roof starts collapsing under the weight or you discover you've got some hideous problem with beetles, OK? Now, what we know about humans is they really, really hate making $30,000 irreversible five-figure decisions, OK, on a house which 50% of people are probably planning to sell within five years, OK? They really, really hate making those kind of decisions. So you've solved all of the scientific problems. You've got the whole how to maximize the calorific value out of the candle stuff done. But you fail to spot the fact that there's another problem out there that you still have to solve before you can actually have a, a meaningful uh, effect on personal energy consumption and on mass energy generation. A nuclear power, you could argue, is even more extreme in that they completely screwed the pooch by choosing the word nuclear, which was a terminology associated with bombs, to describe a form of power generation, which, to be honest, has very little in common with it. Now, I have a weird suggestion here. You can make nu small nuclear power stations, OK? The great problem with nuclear power stations is nimbyism. So don't put it in people's backyards. Put them on ships, OK? If you threatened to build a nuclear power station right next to my house, I'd have conniptions. I'd be frightened about the value of my property. I might be frightened about irradiating my children. If a ship with a few nuclear power plants comes into my local port for a few months every year, my level of anxiety is not 25%, it's about 1%. Okay? If you change the psychological frame in which people have to decide, if you change the context, if you change the story, it's exactly the same as changing air pressure. You change what happens. Okay? Now, the other point I make here is when you're dealing with the rules of physics, okay, they're written somewhere upstairs. You can't change them, okay? So data from the past is necessary and sufficient to explaining what the laws might be in the future because the laws of physics don't change at all. The laws of human behaviour are highly context-dependent and they change according to things as strange as fashion, whim, storytelling, mood, okay? So obsessing about the extent to which something you try in the future must make sense in terms of data you have from the past is a massive constraint on innovation and experimentation. Okay? That's because in physics, yes, if it didn't work in the past, it probably won't work in the future. And the laws tell you what is impossible. I have to say that in anything involving psychology, and you might argue, actually, certain things involving complex systems. I don't know enough about complex systems to say this confidently, but certain complex systems would also not manifest that thing, that actually uh, trying the same thing again and again and again uh, with the expectation that it might work one time is not necessarily a definition of insanity. It might be a definition of complexity. So once you accept the fact that actually... Um, we can't necessarily focus all our time on how to steer the ship in situations where we can also change the weather or in which the weather can change in ways we don't expect should take us away from this kind of deterministic, rationalistic obsession with we can only do things that make sense in advance.
And that's one of my final creative lessons for behavioral science. Don't just test the things that make sense, okay? Test the things that don't make any sense. And then if you find out that they work, you've learned something really, really valuable. Actually, you've learned something mega valuable because it's something that nobody else knows because the odds are nobody else has been wacko enough to test it. We did a charity mailing where we tested seven different variables. The one rational one that made sense to everybody was a goddamn disaster. It actually reduced donations by about 30 to 40%. All the ones that were wacko, to some degree, improved the level of donation. So this is the really important point about creativity, right? Very simple sentence to justify creativity. There are far more good ideas out there we can post-rationalise than there are good ideas we can pre-rationalise. OK? The subset of things that we can try that haven't been tried before that make sense in advance is very, very small compared to the subset of things that might work in different circumstances in a different context. OK, so the, the, the sister, the bizarre half-sister of creativity is testing and rigorous measurement, OK? They're actually, they seem like the most different things in the world. They're actually very, very closely interdependent. That it's actually variation and selection are actually two complementary sides of the same coin. And we need to look at it like this. Let me just explain how things actually make no sense um, at all. Uh, in, uh, uh, until you try them. A few of you watching this might have two dishwashers. If I suggest to you now that you should get two dishwashers, nearly everybody, either who doesn't have two dishwashers or who doesn't have an evangelist friend with two dishwashers, you're going to look at me as if I am totally barking insane, okay? But here's the weird thing. If you have two dishwashers, you never need to unload a dishwasher and you don't actually lose any storage space. Because you have a dirty dishwasher, which is where the dirty stuff goes, and you retrieve stuff from the clean dishwasher, eat off, it, eat off it, put it in the dirty dishwasher. When the dirty dishwasher's full, you turn it on, you put the post-it note that says clean on that dishwasher. You can actually buy things on Amazon that say clean, dirty and running for people with two dishwashers, by the way, OK? And then you simply reverse the process. So there's no unloading necessary. There's no storage lost, okay? And the whole thing is... Now, what's weird about that is that occurs to absolutely nobody in advance, okay? It is absolutely obvious in retrospect, but it's completely non-obvious in advance. And this is why we need creativity and the, what I call the benign bullshit part of bullshit in behavioural science. Just asking the question, yeah, maybe it's that, but maybe it's something altogether different. Stop obsessing about temperature, the volume of water, and the calorific power of the candles. Let's look for some other variables which we might want to introduce. Now, the weird thing is, I learned all, I didn't learn any of this at university, okay? I learned it all at Ogilvy. And the reason is that what university, I think, teaches you to do is reduce every problem into a two-body problem which can be solved mathematically to, to a single optimal right answer. Pretend that the problem is that simple, solve for the pretend simplistic model, and then pat yourself on the back. Okay? It was only at Ogilvy that I learned, no, 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 the trick here is to go and find some completely different variable that no one's looking at and try dicking around with that instead. And I had a wonderful experience, actually, um, last night, which um, was uh, Daniel Kahneman emailed me and about six or seven other people with exactly the kind of problem we ought to be looking at. And it was fantastic. I was about one of very few people on the distribution list without a Nobel Prize, OK? And the question was, someone had asked Daniel, 
A friend of mine sells fruit and vegetable at a farmer's market somewhere in Austin, Texas. And he makes pretty large margins because I guess he's selling to hipsters where, you know, the lumpier and more deformed the vegetables are, the more they'll pay. OK, but the problem is he can never quite sell out because, as Richard Saylor, I think, rightly explained, scarcity value does, applies with perhaps punnets of strawberries. It applies with electrical goods, which are all identical. But with vegetables and fruit, we tend to assume the last cucumber is probably a bit manky and unwanted and no one wants it. And so there you had a bunch of people all answering this fundamentally fascinating question about how do you sell your last bit of fruit? And there were various suggestions, all fascinating. Now, Richard Thaler's in Chicago, so he couldn't resist introducing the price mechanism. And at the very end, I realised that what we were all doing was the same thing that economists would have done. Economists would have said, it's very simple, you drop the price, OK? Because they're looking at a particular set of variables which are high-status variables if you're an economist. And then we were all looking at it through the lens of scarcity value. I said, maybe it's something completely different, I said. Maybe, to be honest, it's the end of the day and the bloke towards the end of the day is just losing interest a bit and he just doesn't look that interested in his customers and he starts packing things into the van and then the table's now half covered. So it looks like you're not supposed to be buying for him. And this, this has to be tested as well. It's not behavioural science, it's simple psychology, but it's one of the things we have to explore. Now, let me just explain. I'm only going to be two more minutes. I apologise for this. OK. When I wrote my book, I said, if you run a coffee shop, leave the chairs and tables outside the coffee shop, even if it's raining, because from 300 yards away, OK, the fact that you have tables and chairs on the pavement means that you're open. It means there's coffee available there and they're clearly open because if they closed or were closing, they would have put the chairs away, okay? And someone wrote to me and said, uh, we used to use that exact insight in reverse because we worked for a coffee shop and the last thing we wanted was bastards coming in in the last 15 minutes before closing time and ordering a coffee and then sitting around for 45 minutes. And we discovered the trick. Now, coffee shop owners are going to hate me all over the world for sharing this. All you've got to do is take two chairs, stack them upside down on a, on a table. No one comes in and no one orders a goddamn thing. Okay? Simply having two chairs upside down, you haven't said closed, you haven't changed the sign, simply doing that tiny little thing is basically enough to prevent anybody coming into your coffee shop. And what we have to do effectively is, I think it's an element of decision hygiene. What we've got at the moment is a very, very weird decision-making process where the deterministic and the reductionist comes first and the creativity, if it's admitted at all, comes last. Look at how government proceeds. It starts off with legislation, then if legislation fails, it moves to in economic incentives, and if economic incentives fail, it then moves on to persuasion. Well, you don't have to be a libertarian to say that's completely the wrong way around. What we need is a long period of actually recontextualizing the problem through the lens of complexity, through the lens of psychology, through the lens of behavioral economics, and the lens of economics, okay? And the lens of legislation. And drug times placebo is much better than drug or placebo on its own. How do we multiply these various things to actually solve the problem without artificially narrowing the problem into defining the problem in terms of your imagined high-status solution and implementing that?
And if we can change decision-making, when I first met Daniel in 2009, he said, I have no hope that we'll actually make human behaviour more rational. What I do hope is that we get more conversation around how people make decisions. See, people will start saying, well, I'm, I'm thinking I'm going to go on holiday, but I'm wondering if it's sunk cost bias because I've already pe paid the deposit. Okay, If we can simply change, as he said back then in 2009, if we can simply change how people gossip, if we can change the way people discuss problems, so that opening it up to other fields and other variables is seen as a positive, not as a disruption, then we've, won we've made 90% of the progress. I've occasionally sat on a board as a non-executive director. Do not put a marketing person on a board. OK, seriously, I, marketing people will hate me for this. Have a separate board for these discussions. There are 10 people all going, this product isn't selling, so we need to drop the price. I'm sitting at the back and going, what I want to say is, have you thought about making it pink? And I know that the second I say this, all my status, it'll, it'll be like passing wind. It'll be a social embarrassment. All my status will disappear. If we can rebalance the status of different modes of problem solving, and we can operate these things in parallel rather than in series, we'll make progress simply through doing that and nothing else. Just add a bit of creativity, acknowledge the fact that, yes, everything is BS, but BS isn't everything, and actually just allow space for the other kind of BS. A little bit of bullshit in a f when you're dealing with a future that you can't predict or fully understand is highly permissible. Thank you very much. See, we didn't overpromise. Uh, everything came together at the end. And for me, I think the red thread of this talk um, is to question everything, be open to discussion, and view new things as positives rather than um, disruptions. Uh, and what about you, David? What did you like the most about this talk? For me, I love the idea of making more space for BS. The fact that we can get away with doing like 10 different, slightly bombastic ways of solving a problem and actually doing them in parallel rather than uh, doing them in series so at the same time rather than one after the other. I really like the idea that if we just try 10 different bombastic things, uh, we might actually get to a better solution. So yeah, that was my favourite part. Great, David. Thank you for sharing. And what if I want to listen to more of these amazing talks? Well, if you missed Nudge Talk this year and can't get enough, head over to Ogilvy Consulting on YouTube or find us on Twitter at Ogilvy Consult UK. Until next time, Bye. Bye.